Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so nice to be here. I've been hearing about CIMC. Well, I actually visited once, just as a quick tour when I was in the area. Um, but um, I never gave a talk here, so happy that finally that has come to pass. I'm, I'm right now in the middle of um, teaching the first half of the three-month course at uh, Insight Meditation Society. Uh, we're about halfway through the first half, the first six weeks. Some people are there for six weeks, and they're halfway through. Some people are just starting to cook one quarter of the way through for the whole three months. Um, so uh, I get to come out here. Mm. And uh, get to share with you um, one aspect of practice that, um, as John has mentioned, I've been focusing on in the last, well, for some time. I've been teaching that course for um, since 2003, but exploring 
the Dharma and practice as a path of happiness for some time before that. I'll share a little bit about how that came to be, my own personal journey, and then uh, exploring together some uh, principles that hopefully will be useful for your, your practice as well. Um, I first got into practice in 1974 when uh, Joseph Goldstein uh, and Jack Cornfield uh, came back from Asia and started uh, teaching at the first um, gathering of, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, of Naropa Institute, what was called Naropa Institute. Now it's, there's a Naropa University, which my son just graduated from a few months ago. Proud dad. And uh, that first summer, I, I went out because uh, Ramdas was there and I was carrying around Be Here Now like a Bible for about oh three or four years before then and I was finally getting a chance to to see to meet with Ramdas and asked him about meditation I'd been doing uh, TM and a few other things uh, before that um, and uh, thought that he might have some good tips and he said go go check that guy Goldstein out he's pretty good and Joseph is if you don't know one of the main teachers uh, of uh, Vipassana Insight Meditation and one of the founders at IMS. Um, and when I heard the teachings, actually after about 10 minutes of hearing the teachings, the first 10 minutes I was kind of judging and saying, well, who's this guy? He doesn't look very, didn't look like my idea of a great spiritual master. He sounded like he was from Brooklyn, I was from Queens. He was just a couple of years older than I, and I could, I could see, well, he's not so different from me. So that was for about the first 10 minutes. And then after that, I just uh, was listening to what he had to say and how it was coming out of him. And I knew it was clear that he knew something that I didn't, and I really wanted to know why he was so comfortable and centered and relaxed in his own skin because I was in a lot of suffering myself, um, not very uh, secure or happy and kind of, uh, I wasn't a happy camper, but I was looking for something to, uh, to inspire me. Like I said, Be Here Now did for quite some time, but I was looking for a practice that I could, I could use for myself and and he was saying that um, it's actually possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts which I never had never crossed my mind as an option before <laughs> but the way he said it and what he w what was coming out of him I really uh, believed it and I just went for it so if you have a lot of suffering by the way if you're saying oh gosh I'm so messed up, uh, which I used to wear as kind of like a badge of, of honor in my college days. Yes, I'm very deep because I'm very messed up, you know. <laughs> that, that got old after a little while. Uh, but if you've got a lot of pain and suffering, sometimes you're that much more motivated to uh, utilize these teachings. And when I did, I did a lot of practice those first years. Um, and I it became my salvation. And I had what was called, um, I had a pretty long, what's sometimes referred to as honeymoon period, where I just was telling everyone, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. You know? And my friends would sometimes kind of slink away from me, like, yeah, okay, keep it to yourself. But, you know. but um, I really, was so grateful and am still so grateful for what the teachings and the practice uh, showed me um, that um, that was what became central in my life. That honeymoon period lasted, oh, maybe about uh, six or seven, eight years or so, which is a pretty long time. Uh, and then at some point, 
I became really serious about my practice. Dead serious. And I lost my joy. And somehow kind of got confused by some teachings or misunderstood some teachings to mean that um, it's not okay to let yourself appreciate and enjoy life. That, and I, I have a, a passionate and celebratory side, but somehow it felt um, dissonant with what I was understanding some core teachings to be. In fact, and it's easy to, to see how the misunderstanding could happen. It, it, I, don't, I realized I wasn't alone. Anybody ever feel like their practice becomes really a serious, uh, a, a kind of a somber kind of a, a feeling? If, that's, if you've experienced that, okay. This is not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha was called the happy one. But the, these are, I'll share with you a couple of teachings that could easily get misinterpreted, just so you get a sense of what I was talking about. One very important principle is called Samvega. This is Samvega. This is a very um, profound understanding. But this is the definition of Samvega, one definition by uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Samvega, the oppressive sh sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life <laughs> as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Sounds like fun, huh? <laughs> uh, the operative word in that definition or the words, the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. But somehow that can be glossed over to mean, oh, life is a drag and let's get out of here as fast as we can. Another teaching that can be misunderstood is, is another valuable understanding and, and um, insight uh, that's called Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A which is sometimes, in some translations, um, translated as um, one should have utter disgust for the aggregates, for this mind-body process called me or you. Or one should cultivate revulsion for the aggregates, that is, feeling revulsion or disgust for these bodies, this body or those out there. It's not tending towards a big uplift in your relationships, you know. But actually, again, this is just a, a miss, it, it's easy to misconstrue. Um, Andy Olinsky, who, who uh, runs the study center in, at, uh, in Barrie, has a great article where he talks about Nibbida and he says those were earlier translations. Really the word Nibbida more accurately should be translated as one should cultivate disenchantment for the aggregates. Disenchantment with regard to the body. That is not being enchanted. One should break the spell of enchantment that one has for this body, the packaging around you, that's a very different flavor than revulsion and disgust. So you can see, and there's many, many uh, presentations, especially from certain streams of Theravadan Buddhism that can easily lead one to feel that um, this is a drag and let's get out. In fact, I'll quote one of my favorite um, 
and inspiring teachers, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's this, he's a Western monastic and uh, the, one of the most respected in all of Theravadan Buddhism. Um, he's in the Ajahn lineage and um, um, was Jack Cornfield's kind of mentor, elder brother, and uh, a very wise being. He says, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. <laughs> or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of the process. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So, you can see that uh, this can be um, a kind of uh, wrong turn in the teachings and understanding of the teachings. And it took me a while to, um, to get back, reclaim my joy. And when I did, I was really interested in not only where I misunderstood the teachings, but what the Buddha actually had to say about happiness. He was called the happy one. Okay, what, what is, where does happiness, where can happiness be found? Not just in complete Nibbana and enlightenment and freedom, but in daily life, in just as we go through our lives. Is this one thing to say, oh yeah, when somehow the mind gets free and I, and I see, wake up to the unconditioned, I'll make it to the promised land. Until then, I've just got to slug it out and, you know, no pain, no gain. That's not what he was talking about. He actually said, go for the highest happiness and all the other ones will come along the way. If you're familiar with some of the lists, joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. You know. Joy is one of the four Brahma-viharas, divine abodes. It's one of the, the five jhana factors of uh, concentration and absorb absorption states. And there's lots of different kinds of flavors of joy and well-being in the teachings. Pamoja, gladness, sukha, happiness, piti, bliss, or rapture, and lots of others in between. Contentment, peace, ease. So, as I explored, I um, came across a few principles that really struck me about not only some lofty ideal in the future, but how we can live and do this practice and focus on well-being and happiness. You know, when you hear the teachings and the Four Noble Truths, the center of, of the Buddha's teachings, there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end to suffering. It's a lot of focus on suffering, and we can forget that this is about well-being and happiness. So what, um, what I've done, this is just my version and my approach, is see um, how these teachings can 
where real happiness lies and how they can be used in a very practical way. And that's what you know, ended up being this book, uh, Awakening Joy, and this course that I teach, uh, which, uh, by the way, as w was said, you can take online, um, and uh, it goes from February through November. We're just kind of finishing. It's a 10-month course, and um, anyone can take it. There's a suggested donation, but anybody can offer whatever they want to, to do it. I just like to share it with a lot of people. And it seems if people say, okay, I'm going to do this, that uh, it, it works. Uh, and there's a, at the door, there's a, a sheet uh, that if you want to write your name and email, I can send you information on, on the next course. So with these principles, three stood out of the teachings that all of these um, months of developing certain states are based on. So the first principle, the teaching on wise effort. You're probably familiar in the Eightfold Path, one of the links is wise or right effort. And the, the actual definition of wise effort is, has to do with unwholesome states, that is guarding against unwholesome states and when they arise to overcome them. And the other two aspects have to do with wholesome states. That is cultivating or developing wholesome states and to maintain and increase wholesome states when they arise. This is an important and good thing to do. The Buddha said, when there is a wholesome state, maintaining it and increasing it is a skillful thing that he recommended. The tricky part is, when there's a wholesome state and you say, I want more, or how do I keep it here? Yeah, let's go for it. As soon as you've done that, you've fallen into an unwholesome state of grasping. So it's very tricky, right? But there are ways to maintain and increase these wholesome states. And that they lead to a genuine opening and freedom. Unwholesome states are states you're familiar with, I'm sure. Greed, hatred, delusion, fear, jealousy, um, anger, lust, um, the judging mind. You're, you know those, right? right? And all of those states, when you think about when you're caught in, an, in a negative mind state, there's a contraction in the mind and in the body. Those are called akusala unwholesome and they're unwholesome because they're associated with suffering and they lead to more suffering when we are not aware of them wholesome states non-greed generosity non-hatred kindness love non-delusion clarity other wholesome states like compassion and joy and peace uh, and equanimity and lots of all of those beautiful states they're wholesome because they are associated with happiness and they lead to more happiness and when you're in those wholesome states there's a kind of expansion the mind relaxes it's open there's an aliveness the body relaxes as well and he said those are good states to cultivate so this is the first principle, seeing where happiness lies. And this will go against the conditioning that most of us are up against continuously. As I'll share exhibit A on this. This is a, an ad that somebody gave me a while ago called the gold shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. 
And here's the ad, two-page ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth, every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold, is the second page. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. <laughs> Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. Okay. It's brilliant, right? You might not even care for jewelry, but you read that and say, oh, I want some too, yeah. You know? Now, you might say, I know that. What do you think? I'm a, a sucker for that advertising? Those madmen doing what they do? Well, even if you know better, there's some very heavy-duty conditioning that you're up against. In one, one study that was done, it was about a dozen years ago now, the, it was a, it's conservative, I think, by our, st our uh, standards these days, but in this study, about two th the year 2000, the average American would receive 3,000 messages like that every day. Right? Now, with hyperlink reality beyond that, you can maybe do that in an hour if you're really kind of <laughs> jumping, you know. And the thing is, it gets in there. You know, when Coca-Cola pays a few million dollars for 30 seconds of your time during watching the Super Bowl or some big event, it's not like they're saying, we're going to introduce this new drink that these people won't have heard. Maybe somebody out there hasn't heard this product. No, no, no. They know. They just want you to see that image of a real smile on somebody's face when they're saying, yeah, Coke refreshes, feels good. It gets in there. And even though you might not realize it, there is a conditioning that's happening. So it takes some practice, a lot of practice, to overcome the message that says, you need this to make you happy. And the first principle of seeing where happiness lies is about wholesome states, cultivating wholesome states. Let me ask you, just think for a moment, uh, you might close your eyes for a moment and get in touch with um, what brings you joy? Some, maybe some activity or some experience or just what does it for you? As you think about it, you might even notice how good that feels just to think about it. Okay, you can open your eyes. Just take a few comments from the crowd. What brings you joy? Puppies, Puppies yeah, dog or a, pa <laughs> a, a cat. Almost everyone there comes. My the nieces. Your nieces playing with kids. Zooming down a big mountain. Yeah. What else? Snowshoeing. It was right. Yeah. Great Connecting with friends. Great. What else? Dancing, yeah, moving your body. What else? Anything else? Singing. Singing. Oh, after my heart. Yeah. All of those things. Did anybody say their jewelry? <laughs> <laughs> no. But that's subversive because those things don't cost a lot of money. So this is the first thing. Seeing that happiness lies, these wholesome states don't have to do with getting something. They are something that's already in us. They just have to be awakened. Second principle is um, a teaching that uh, the Buddha gave connected with those wholesome states. In one discourse, he says, 
there's a gladness that's connected with the wholesome. And he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, the, the words are, uh, that gladness is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And that gladness opens the heart, one gains inspiration and delight in the meaning and in the truth. And he gives the example, say you're in the middle of a generous act. This is in the discourse he, he, uh, he describes this. If you're in the middle of the generous act, he says, he recommends, reflect, think to yourself, I'm being generous now. Isn't that interesting? He says, this is a good thing. Just think, oh, I'm being generous now. He's not saying, hey, check out what a generous guy I am, you know. <laughs> Everybody see? I'm pretty generous. No, 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 no. That's just more ego. But what he's saying is, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through you. How good that feeling is. And tuning into that gladness opens, uplifts the heart and the mind and um, creates greater happiness. So this is the second principle to tune into the gladness connected with the wholesome state. The first principle of wholesome states, that's the, uh, the, um, the title of the book, and of course, ten Awakening Joy, 10 Steps That Will Put You on the Road to Real Happiness, is cultivating 10 different wholesome states, ones that I've found particularly um, central to the teachings, and tuning into the gladness when you're in the middle of those states. And this is also supported by modern neuroscience, which says when you pay attention to the feeling of well-being, you are changing around neural pathways in your brain and you're inclining your mind towards greater happiness and well-being. My, my buddy uh, Rick Hansen, who, um, has he come here and spoken? No. He has a, a really great book, Buddha's Brain, um, about neuroscience and, uh, and dharma and psychology. And uh, it's become very popular. And there's this whole neuroscience movement which is kind of backing up the, the, the teachings. He, his formula is when you are feeling a true feeling of well-being to Pay attention for 30 seconds. Really let it sink in. He says, awareness is both a spotlight and a vacuum. It shines the light on the goodness, and when you really pay attention and let it register, it's, it's getting sucked into your neural pathways and deepening them. He says, pay attention for 30 seconds. If you can do that six times in a day, I know, that's three minutes, that's a lot <laughs> we're talking about here. If you can do that six times in a day over a two-week period, you will notice a dramatic shift in your well-being, both because of the increase in neural pathways, but also you're starting to get into the habit of looking for what's good, which is opposite how we normally operate. If you know uh, some neuroscience, you, you might be familiar with uh, this little almond-shaped cluster in our brain called the amygdala, which is a, a cluster of neurons that looks out for what can go wrong. Right? And it's a good thing that we have an amygdala. It kind of kept us alive for all this time. But we can have overactive amygdalas, particularly when we're stressed out we tend to see what's wrong. Have you ever noticed that? The amygdala is firing like crazy, and there is either the, a vigilance or a fear, flight, freeze response, and that contraction of mind looks for what's wrong. Rick, as he puts it, he says, the brain is wired up so that it's 
Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. <laughs> and it's kind of how it works. If you've, you have, uh, and I, I read a study that if you have one negative experience, say somebody says something nasty to you, it will take seven positive experiences to kind of overcome that for the rest of, you know, the next few hours. Or if you've, you might have loved dogs, but if a dog bit you somewhere along the line, you have a kind, it's in there where you're kind of vigilant, maybe a little bit more than, a lot more than otherwise. So this is the second thing, to really tune into the gladness connected with the wholesome. The third principle of the teachings that really has struck me another teaching from uh, uh, Majima Nikaya, simple, um, straightforward statement, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? As it says in modern neuroscience, another way of putting this, neurons that fire together, wire together the neural pathways start getting deeper. And our brain is very plastic, much more than they could have imagined if, uh, just not that long ago. So over time, if you start to notice the wholesome and really be present for it and take it in, you start to shift your default setting. And it takes practice. For, for some people, it doesn't come naturally to, to look for what's good. For others, this is deepening a pattern that's already there. Now, I'm not saying to just be in la-la land and, uh, you know, just be skipping through fields of daisies and isn't the world wonderful? No. I've been teaching Buddha's, Buddha Dharma for a long time. I'm very familiar with the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. And there's a cause and there's a way out. But if you're just focusing on the suffering, it gets very somber. Life is made of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And the more you can open up to the blessings and the goodness and the wholesome states when they arise, the more capacity you have to really open skillfully to all the difficulties. And sometimes when people hear awakening joy, they say, awakening joy, give me a break, joy. I'll just take not being miserable today, thank you. And I'm not, again, just talking about a smiley smile. All the, the flavors of, that I'm calling joy from, from contentment or ease or peace, they really are... Um, held by the, the basic feeling of well-being inside that is possible, that's available. That's here, that's your natural state when you're not stressed or confused. You were born with this capacity for well-being. You see a baby, if the baby is fed and diapered and gets a little bit of love, she or he what do they do? Squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? Right? That's why we like being around babies so, so much. It kind of reminds us. Well, the same for an adult. If you put an adult in an fMRI machine and hook it up, uh, hook their brain up to, um, to the machine and uh, electrodes, if that adult is not, uh, doesn't have physical pain, or mental stress, that's a pretty big one right there, but if there's no, not stress and not physical pain, they exhibit, they are conscious, um, creative, caring, um, content, and uh, It's good, whatever it is. With another, <laughs> see, caring, content, conscious, creative. 
What is it? What is it? No. Conscious. Uh, wait. Let's see if I can remember it right here. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that's got me curious. After the break, I'll let you know. It's another C. But I'm going to just let it go for now. It's good. Uh, your natural state is one of ease and well-being. And this is where we want to come back to. We all want to be happy. Anybody who doesn't want to be happy here? Now, if you're holding your head back because you're really saying, yeah, I like being grumpy, right? <laughs> Which is understandable. That's just your way of being happy in that moment. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. But you, we are all moved by a force. Take a look what, what motivates you throughout your day towards greater well-being. Whatever you do, it might be misguided. It might lead you to places where you should not go. But we are motivated either to avoid pain or have greater happiness and well-being, sometimes known as a hit of pleasure. But this is just activating that place that really wants happiness. Okay. Now, one more, one more thing, and then maybe we'll get to a few, uh, a few of the principles. There's time. Um, in case you're saying, well, gosh, is it okay to feel well-being when there's so much suffering in the world? You know, this is a very compelling argument. How can I let myself feel good about life or let myself experience joy when there's so much suffering? I mean, you just, any, any newspaper, any media expression, you will get a hit of suffering ever. How are you around somebody who is in despair and really scared about the world? With good reason, they might be. Does it bring out your inspiration? Um, I want to read a quote, one of my favorite quotes from the book. Uh, by uh, Howard Zinn, the great historian uh, who wrote The People's History of the United States. He says, uh, this is from his, um, his essay, The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic, it's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. <coughs> Our own well-being and love of life is contagious. It can activate that in others. So the way I see it, our own coming into true peace and happiness, true happiness, is something that reminds others of their own well-being. It, it, it's contagious. That's why we like hanging around with, with people who inspire us. We love to be inspired. And we need as much inspiration as we can because the world does have a lot of suffering. But what we get through the news and through the media is only, is 98% the awful story that sensationalizes. It doesn't 
make news to say, oh, this person was so kind to their neighbor. You know, Hello, big deal, right? That's happening all the time. So to miss out on that and to just see, oh, how rotten. If you're looking through the lens that says, the world is going down the tubes, humanity is awful, and everybody around me is a jerk, you will have ample evidence to corroborate your theory. But if you can see how amazing life is, and how underneath whatever confusion people really want to be loved and love, or just to be out in nature, or a body that can heal itself. There's magic going on, on all around, but we kind of miss it. If you start to see through that lens, then you will open to a much bigger context and also let yourself be able to process all the pain and sorrow. One of the steps in this, in this uh, approach is opening up to all the pain and suffering with wisdom and, and learning not how to, to not be overwhelmed by it. Because even opening the heart to suffering and sorrow can be a doorway to compassion and can soften us and can connect us with the human experience. But it's not the whole show. So I'll take you through um, just a few more. Gosh, it's almost 8.30. So do uh, people have to go at 8.30? So maybe I'll, I'll take a few more, uh, uh, do a couple more minutes, and then uh, carry on for, for people who uh, can stay. So the first important um, wholesome state is having the intention for true well-being, which is really part of the Eightfold Path. Wise, after wise understanding, there's wise intention saying, I want to go for, um, for awakening, for freedom, however you want to put it, for a more loving heart. That's the direction I want to face. And once you make that decision, actually the key decision of putting happiness at the center of your life, and everything follows from that. A lot of times, this is not what people do. They, they postpone it. Well, when I get the right job, then I'll be happy. If I meet the right person, then I'll be happy. If I become successful in this, then I'll be happy. That's postponing it, rather than saying, okay, my life is happening right now. How can I really see all the gifts in it and honor it with my presence? Having that, making that heartfelt decision to face in that direction and then let go of the timetable and let life unfold, that is the key to opening up to greater freedom and well-being. As the Tibetan saying goes, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And intention is the source of all karma in the, these teachings. The second wholesome state is mindfulness. Because mindfulness, as the Buddha said, the most direct way, a most wonderful way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief and despair and realize the highest happiness. That is the establishment of mindfulness. Because mindfulness has the unique property of all the different mental factors. There's 52 mental factors in Buddhist psychology. Some unwholesome, some wholesome, some neither. Mindfulness is the one factor that weakens all the unwholesome states and strengthens all the wholesome states. That's pretty amazing, just being present for your life. And it also has the added benefit when you are in a wholesome state and you can bring mindfulness to it, you amplify that wholesome state. That's how you in maintain and increase the wholesome state. So just as an example, we'll go to the third wholesome state, which is gratitude. Okay? The Buddha talked a lot about uh, a gratitude. And 
if you are uh, familiar with the Blessing Sutta, the Mangala Sutta, all the blessings that are supreme, and, and among them to be content and grateful, this is a blessing supreme. He says, reflect on this a lot. So we can sometimes feel grateful, but to really let it in is a whole other experience. I'm not just talking about feeling good, I'm talking about feeling what it's like to feel good. This is where the mindfulness deepens the experience. So with gratitude, for instance, you are opening yourself up. It's, the, it's I think, the, the most direct way towards wholesome states. All of these others are a bit more subtle. But when you are, as one, one teacher says, gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish. You know? If you're kind of busy complaining, oh, this is wrong and that's wrong and too bad about that, you're contracted and there's no room to open up to the blessings. But when you get into the habit of saying thank you to life, thank you, it's like your satellite dish can receive all the blessings that life is showering you with. And to not only know them, but to let yourself settle in and feel it. As a quick ex uh, example, quick experience, close your eyes for a moment. And I'd like you to um, bring to mind some blessing in your life. Maybe someone that you're grateful for or something that you're grateful for to life for. And uh, have an image of either that person or that circumstance. And as you get in touch with the image, give a very simple, silent thank you from your heart. Thank you. To that person or to life, thank you. And now let yourself relax in that feeling. Just feel the landscape of gratitude as you say, thank you. Take it in. Here's your first 30-second practice time. Take a breath. We'll do one more. We have so many blessings. Bring to your mind one other, someone or something that you're grateful for. Have an image that person or situation, and just a simple, sincere thank you from your heart. Thank you. And let yourself relax into that feeling. Don't miss it. That the heart can feel that open and appreciative. So this is the idea to notice any moments of well-being and then, and you don't have to make a whole big spiritual thing, okay, now, I'm, excuse me, I, I have to take 30 seconds here, you know, you know. You're just kind of quietly taking it in, mm, oh yeah, or when you're feeling grateful to somebody to express it deepens that karmic connection dramatically. Then there's lots of these other states, states like the wholesomeness of skillful action, of wise action, of acting with integrity, that every time you choose the high road, not just, oh yeah, that's the way I'm supposed to be, but oh yeah, how good that feels. Hmm, notice it. Or every time that you can let go 
of grasping and are generous, like the Buddha suggests. Then there's more advanced states, like learning to be really kind to yourself, a key component in this whole practice, and extending your your caring and your love to others, either through compassion or through loving kindness. So, um, I guess uh, I, I'll I'll stop here because I know some some people uh, have to go, and I'm here, and we can continue with the conversation. We could do more exercises or take more questions. But what I want you to leave with, or what I hope you leave with, if you have to go now, is the fact that this practice is one that opens the heart. It's not just about suffering. Notice any moments of well-being, true well-being, and really take it in. Make that as much of a practice as guarding against unwholesome states, to develop and be present for those wholesome states. They're right inside of you, and the more you can get in touch with them, the more they radiate out and touch everybody else. This is a path that's developing and leading to more and more happiness. And uh, we need as much happiness and goodness as can come out of you, because uh, then you make a real difference in the world. So if anyone, those who have to go, can go, and those who stay, um, will stay here. So we can uh, maybe take some, some time if people have questions or we can have a conversation um, or I can take you through some more exercises if you feel like it. And thank you for your attention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So... Any uh, anything that comes up from what I, I said, don't be shy. I can I can take uh, any kind of complaints or skepticism or whatever. Here's right over here. And I, hang I on. Have a question. Here, hang on. Um, while you were talking. Yeah. And and I was hoping to to ask it. Good. And it's very maybe a very simple thing, but it's it's not. Um, so sometimes when I'm meditating, it's, you know, accessing that joy, it's, it's very accessible to me. Mm -hmm. But I think other times, especially when the body is feeling pain, like I was, you know, as we were sitting for 45 minutes, I was feeling this intense pressure in my tailbone. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, ugh, you know, and I'm tr trying to just... Yeah, is there is there another mic, John? Yeah, let's see, or maybe a a battery. So you're feeling pain, and it's hard to feel joy and well-being in the middle of that. Yeah. 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 And it, ha by the way, this is not to feel this all the time. Ha happy people are not happy all the time. If somebody says, I'm happy all the time, then they're living in denial. You know, ha truly, the people who have real well being are sad, are grieving, have pain, get angry. So it's, this is not to be unrealistic and thinking, oh, well, you know, I should be this way. It's, uh, what, what it comes down to me, uh, for me, actually, is um, being authentic, being right where you are, feeling connected with your experience, and out of that connection and authenticity, there's an aliveness that comes. If you're feeling pain, first of all, 
as a meditation practice, if you're sitting with pain and it's, and it's fairly continuous, then, and, and it's just one big struggle, uh, then time to do some compassion practice and move. Uh, and if it's, uh, the, the Buddha says uh, in, in, his, in his suggestions on dealing with difficulties, if your mind becomes very tight and withered, he, he talks about forgetfulness and inattention, where you're not just focusing on the pain. The mind will get very fatigued. So you take care of yourself as best you can, and then if you've done everything and there's still pain, how can I relate to this pain without creating more contraction in my mind, without adding fear or aversion or hatred, but just, I've done everything I can, how can I relate to this experience with an openness that's not adding more, adding the second dart in, the, in, in Buddhism it's called, adding a, a problem on top of it. I hate this. One thing is to feel this is, this is painful. Another is I hate this pain. How can I get out? Then you've created a big problem. So to just, if you can, be mindful of the pain and not necessarily call it pain, but, but notice the actual sensations. I, I take a look, I'm like I'm Sherlock Holmes for, for like a minute or so, just, oh, let's see if I can be interested in this. Or I take care of my, my body to the best extent the, the, that's possible and I learn to relax behind it so I'm not fighting it, just a little at a time. And the same way in your life, if you're going through really a painful period, it's not to pretend that things are hunky-dory, it's to say, oh yeah, this is a hard time, now can I hold it with compassion? Can I get all the support I need, hold it with compassion, and not just say to myself, this month is going to be a bummer, you know, or this year is, is just, you know, is awful. But there are moments of well-being interspersed even in those difficulties, so it's not quite as opaque. But you learn to hold your pain with great compassion and awareness, so you're not adding to it. As, as it's sometimes said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And that's what the Buddha was talking about, not adding to the suffering that's already there. And in that willingness to be with things, when you open up to your difficulties, you find a courage and a, um, a, a, a kindness and a, a presence and a wisdom that you're cultivating that is there when you're not feeling the pain too. If you can find compassion and understanding with the difficult stuff and have the courage to, to do it a little at a time, then you're also opening up to all the good stuff too. Because we can contract and say, uh-oh, I better protect myself. I don't want to feel this and I don't want to feel life because it's too scary or it's too painful. And when that becomes the habit, you cut yourself off from all the, uh, the good qualities inside as well. Is it on? Does it work? How do we know the point where cultivating happiness becomes like craving yeah. for happiness? Hello? Yeah, oh. say yeah. it again. <laughs> That's better. Good, say it again. Say okay. it again. How do we know the point where cultivating happiness becomes craving for happiness? Ah, okay. Very good. Anytime there's a contraction, you're cutting off the happiness. So there's a difference between, say, appreciating what's here or inclining the mind towards well-being and letting go of your timetable or frustration that it's not here. Inclining towards well-being, the Buddha said, is a good thing to cultivate wholesome states. But there's a difference between when a wholesome state is here Appreciating it fully is different than getting attached to it, because it's going to pass. 
So it's not to say, oh, you know, how can I make every moment happy? It's more, can I be with the moments when they're really a gift fully and allow for them to pass and be with the other side of the equation too? In that learning to be here for the whole show, you are cultivating a, a much deeper happiness than fleeting Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.